you can go ahead and open to Philippians 2. <clears throat> so, Philippians 2. And I'm going to read what we went over last week just because it really bleeds over into what we're going to be discussing this week. This, uh, this week is kind of a bookend on last week. So, just keep in mind what we talked about last week. If, if you can remember back that far, reading, uh, reading it together will help. But this will be a bookend because if you remember, Jesus is saying there's a way that we need to conduct ourselves. There's a way that we need to treat others. We need to consider them more significant than ourselves, which is not always easy to do. We need to not only look to our own interests, but look to the interest of others, right? And he said the key ingredient or the way to do that most effectively is through a disposition of humility. And so the, real, the text right here is really about humility. It's really about the conduct befitting a Christian. And humility is one of the, is one of the I guess, quintessential attributes or, or one of the most obvious representations or displays of someone whose life has been transformed by the gospel. So now we have a lot to be humble about, but we're not always the most humble people, right? Um, and that's the, that's, the, that's the detriment of the fallen nature is that God has gifted us in ways and sometimes that gifting goes to our head or maybe we use it for our own glory or to advance our own agenda or to establish our own kingdom rather than Christ's. So we have to be careful. That's, that's the problem with working against a, the human condition or a fallen nature. But just to recap, listen to this. So I'm going to start in verse one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, what Austin talked about two weeks ago, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He's speaking of unity in the body, having the same love, being in full accord and count, sorry, uh, full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit where we picked up last week. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And here we get into this week. Have this mind in and of yourselves. All right, so this is how Paul starts it out. Have this mind in and of yourself, which was in Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is a critical place in the text. And the way that we interpret this sets the trajectory for interpreting the rest of the text. This is, in, in evangelicalism, this is not often missed, but it is missed. It's like a rare disease. And I started looking up some rare diseases and I won't give you a bunch of details about stuff, but uh, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of rare and fatal diseases. So missing the point of this, missing the not having the right hermeneutic in this text is, is like the person who ends up having a rare and fatal disease. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's detrimental. 
When it does, it's, it's fatal. It's life-threatening. It's a big, big, big issue. Um, there is a disease called uh, progeria or Hutchinson-Guilford progeria. This is a rare fatal genetic condition of childhood when a child has features that resemble premature aging. You've seen kids like this probably. I mean, it's, it's very, very, very rare, but it is, aside from a miracle, it is indefinitely fatal. So you may see a kid who has, uh, I mean, not, to, not making fun at all, you know that, but a, but a head that is alien-shaped because it's like parts of the child is growing and aging, but a lot of the child, most of the child is not. So it makes the child look very, very odd. I mean, it's not a kid that you would think, is something going on with that kid? I mean, it's obvious. And this is progeria. This is a big deal. And children usually do not live past 10 years old. Uh, sometimes they do, but very rarely do they live past 10 years old. But if a child gets this, if a child is born with this, it pretty much is a death sentence. It doesn't happen very often. And the same is true with this text. Now, a lot of people miss this text, but I'm speaking specifically amongst evangelical Christians, those who profess Christ, profess the, the gospel of Jesus. Lifeway did some research with Ligonier Ministries, and they surveyed 3,000 people. Okay, in the grand scheme of things, that's not a lot of people, but they surveyed 3,000 people, asking them primary first-tier orthodox questions. One of those being, what do you think of Jesus, his person? Is he divine? Is he deity? Or is he just a man, just a prophet, as the Jehovah's Witness and many others would, would, would say or would argue? And amongst evangelical Christians, which, by the way, Christianity hinges on the deity of Christ. So evangelical Christians, 40% of that 3,000 disagreed and said, Jesus is not divine. He emptied himself of his deity. He gave up his divine. He gave up his deity. And this is a big, big issue. So in the grand scheme of things amongst evangelicals, it doesn't happen very often that you run across a believer who's an evangelical and they say, no, I, I think Christ emptied himself of his deity. You don't run into that very often, but it does happen. You know, so statistically speaking, 40%. Maybe that is kind of a big number, but 40%. Obviously the 60% said, no, no, he's divine. But of those 60%, they missed it on a lot of other orthodox issues. So it's kind of demoralizing when you think about evangelicals, those who profess, which in America, according to research, 90% are Christians. Now that's Mormons calling themselves Christians and others who call themselves Christians who are absolutely not, who have a false gospel and so on and so forth. But the point is that there are a lot who say I'm Christian. There's a lot who say I'm evangelical Christian. But if Christianity hinges on the deity of Jesus then maybe those who are truly in Christ are much fewer than we actually think. If 40% of evangelicals are, or if, 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 if evangelicals, if 40% of the evangelicals represent those who do not believe that Jesus is deity, then we've, we've, got, some, we've got some work to do, right? So this is kind of what's happening in this text. This is kind of the, the issue that I, wanna, that I wanna present to you. So today I told you it's gonna be a little bit of, of theology, so just... Let me put my nerd specs on. So just kind of get, get ready for that. Um, it's, not, it's not a difficult text. If you mess it up, you mess it up big. There's, there's, there's first-tier issues and there's tertiary issues. This is a first-tier issue. This is, a, this, is, this, is, 
this is a huge matter of orthodoxy. If you miss this, you've got big problems. Big deal. I'll put it this way. If someone wanted to be a part of Haven Ridge and they denied the deity of Christ, I would say you're not in Christ. So you're absolutely not going to be recognized as one who's a biblical member of Haven Ridge Church. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. This is a big, big, big issue. So if this is the way you think, speak now or keep it to yourself. Um, but it will come out eventually. But hopefully if someone's kind of confused on the issue, I will bring some clarity to things today. All right, so I'm gonna give you a verse-by-verse breakdown of these things. And sometimes it might be a little muddy, a little thick, uh, but we'll work through that. And um, if there's questions afterwards, then I'm here and I'm available. So again, Paul begins, he says, have this mind in yourself. Again, we're going with humility. The point of this text is to remind you that you should be humble in all things. And the, the example that you're given is in Christ, right? So Paul's setting this up. Hey, be humble. Hey, if you need a good example, here's Jesus. All right, so be like him. The one who had nothing to be humble about humbled himself, okay? He humbled himself who existed in the form of God, did not expect equality with God, a thing to be grasped or a thing to be exploited. And he took on the form of a servant, the likeness of men, and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You don't get more humble than that. You just don't. Consider what Jesus gave up. Consider what Jesus left behind. Not his deity, but consider what he left behind. That is the ultimate act of humility. And so that's what Paul is getting at. Be humble. Because you have a lot to be humble about. (laughs) So be humble. And so he starts out of the gate. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Something interesting. Listen to this. He was in the form of God. It doesn't mean he was in the form and then he ceased to be in the form when he became incarnate, when he became flesh. Didn't mean that. Because if you read it and you're not careful, you could say, okay, it said he existed in the past tense. Consider when Paul is writing this. Paul is reflecting on the incarnation. Okay, he's not saying, oh, well, when, when, when Jesus was with God, he was so different that he left all those things behind. There were things he left behind, but he didn't leave behind what it means to be in the form of God. He's speaking in past tense, remembering, recounting the incarnation. He's saying, listen, Philippi, you know, he, he, he always existed in the form of God and he did not expect equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Now, some would read that and say, well, what he means by that is, uh, and not theologians, I used to think this way, what he means by that is, oh, it's, 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 a complex theo- it's a complex theology. It's a conundrum. It's, it's, it's really hard to understand. So the expectation is not that you would ever understand what it was to be in the form of God. That's not what it means. So when you read this and it says, okay, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't mean a thing to be understood. He didn't mean a thing that we could, okay, I can get that. Or this is way above your head, this is too deep for you, you really won't understand these things, right? It doesn't say that. Matter of fact, when the Bible uses mysterious language, it's about him revealing mysteries. God is not out to keep you from knowledge. He's not out to keep you in the dark. That's not the way God operates. He's about revealing himself, making himself known. And this is the same way here. It does not mean that this is too complex or too deep for you to understand. Rather, when he says in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, the intention was always for Jesus to leave 
behind his position in glory. And to come here and to put on flesh and to die, to suffer, to substitute himself and to appease the wrath of God when God poured out his wrath onto Jesus. So this was always the plan, but his equality with God was not something that Jesus would use to his own advantage. It was not something that he would exploit or use for his own personal gain, i.e. the very reason when he comes here and he lives in this humble state, when he could say, hey, I'm God, I'm marching around, executing power here, executing power there, showing divine knowledge here, showing divine knowledge there, and basically just wiping the floor with any naysayers. It's not the way that he did it because equality with God was not something he counted to be grasped, not something that he would use for his own advantage, not something that he would exploit for his own gain. But he always existed in the form and the fullness of God. This word form, and here's what's interesting because later it says that he was in the form of God, and then it also says that he began, he being found in human form. Same word there, same word there. And there's all kinds of fun debate over this word, morphe, right? We get this mighty morphin power rangers, the root word there in the Greek, morphe. This is a, a, a change here. He's all, or a, a, a representation. Uh, so he, he's in human form. He's in the form of God is what it says. And what that means is that he's the true and exact nature of something, the true and exact nature. So we see he's in the form of God. We see he's in the form of man. What does that mean? He is both the true and exact representation and nature of God and man. So how does that translate? He's fully God, fully man. Not 70, 30, not 90, 10, not 50, 50. He's 100% God, 100% man. So this idea of form or morphe, it is to possess all the qualities and the characteristics of something else. And we can look at scripture. We don't have to just look philosophically or look at, you know, yeah, obviously look into the Greek and understand what it means, but everybody can't do that, right? I can't really do that. I rely on tools. But what can I look at? I can look to other scriptures like John 17, five. It says, and now father glorifying, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is speaking of the glorious position that he had from eternity past with the Trinity. And in Hebrews 1, 3, he says, it says of Jesus that he is the exact representation of his nature. And what does morphe mean? What does form mean? The true and exact nature or representation of something. So we have it right there spelled out for us in Hebrew, Hebrews 1, 3. He is the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. In other words, Jesus did not change his form. He added form. He didn't get rid of one and substitute it with another. He still is the form, the fullness, the substance, the nature of God when he came. Didn't look like that, but that was the plan. That was the design. So God didn't counter, Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't think that it would be something that he would use to his advantage. He wasn't gonna come here and exploit that for his gain. And so what Jesus is doing, what this text is doing, where others would use this text to argue against the deity of Christ, and you can see how they would do that. If you talk to Jehovah's Witness, this is what they're gonna say. Look, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Well, what could he empty himself of? We think, I mean, empty is to do without, is to give up something, right? 
And then they're gonna go and say, see, he became human. He took on human form. So clearly he, in the past tense, was in the form of God. No longer, not that a, not that a Jehovah's Witness would say that. They don't kind of interact with that, right? So they would just say, look, he emptied himself. And he took on the, you know, he's, 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 he's human here. He's just a person. He's just a man. So there's an attack on the deity of Christ. But that's nothing new. That's nothing new. Throughout history, the councils throughout history have basically squashed the bug of denying the deity of Christ. That's what they've been doing. The Council of Nicaea so many years ago squashed the bug of Arianism, which says Christ is not divine, but a created being. That's all he is. He's just a created being. Subordinationism says that Jesus is different in nature than the Father, therefore not eternal, nor is he divine. There are people that adhere to subordinationism. It's an attack on the deity of Christ. Adoptionism says that he was tested and granted supernatural powers, but started as an ordinary man. Just like Abraham was selected for what he was selected for, just like Joseph was selected for what Joseph was selected for, Jesus being a man like everybody else, nothing special about him other than passing the test, like Abraham passed the test, like Joseph passed the test, and so many others. This says that, hey, he was brought into this position. God saw his giftings, God saw his abilities and said, hey, you've done well, son, so here, I'm gonna throw you a bone, I'm gonna bring you in, I'm gonna endow you with these powers, with these gifts. But he started as an ordinary man and that's what adoptionism teaches and it denies the deity of Christ. But the Bible wholeheartedly affirms the deity of Christ. The Bible everywhere else speaks completely against the idea that he emptied himself of his deity. And I begin by saying that Christianity hinges on the deity of Jesus. It all hinges on the fact that Jesus is God because you understand you understand that true justification or for us to be declared innocent and right before God, it demands a very high standard. The standard is a sacrifice, but not just a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus had to be God in order to be perfect. Otherwise, we're relying on an ordinary man to die as a perfect man, which can't happen because of the fall. So this is not a tertiary issue. This is not a tertiary issue at all. Albert Moeller, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, uh, yeah, of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, Albert Moeller said, he came out with this, uh, I guess it's a paradigm called theological triage. And if you ever wonder why there's different denominations and all this kind of stuff. This is kind of a good way to kind of categorize those things or understand those things. And in his theological triage, which is a good paradigm, or maybe you can call it a rubric or something that you might use to test things. What causes division? What should divide? What shouldn't divide? And what Moeller does is at the top of the triangle, he has first tier issues, primary orthodox issues, gospel you know, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, such as it says in Ephesians. Jesus Christ is God, his way, the truth, and life. All these things that evangelical Christianity, orthodox Christians hold to. And then you've got these other issues like baptism. So you've got a mode of baptism, right? You've got baptism by dunking. You've got baptism by sprinkling. And there's great debate over these things, okay? So there's great debate, but when I look at someone who sprinkles instead of immerse or does immersion, would I look at them and say, oh, you're not in Christ? No, because that's a tertiary issue. You see, the 
first tier primary issues are the issues that divide Christians from the rest of the world. The secondary and third issues are the issues that might separate us by denomination. I'm not a Presbyterian because there are some secondary or tertiary issues that I don't agree with. I'm not a Pentecostal because there's some secondary issues that I don't agree with. So what we do when we choose a denomination, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, maybe you just saw a handsome pastor and said, this is where I'm gonna go, but maybe, maybe, I'm talking about Austin, of course, but maybe, maybe you thought to yourself, you know what, okay, so I've got Baptist here, I've got Presbyterian here, this week I preached to a bunch of Wesleyans and that was, that was exciting because we disagree on many points, um, but uh, not that it was some Wesleys, but mostly Baptists. So, so, but we disagree on, there's all these different denominations with different beliefs. Every now and then one crops up and you're like, I don't think they belong to the Christian faith because they're divided on, 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 on first tier issues, on major issues of orthodoxy. So they're calling them Christians while denying the deity of Christ. I would say, no, 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 that divides us. That divides us as Christian and non-Christian. But then you take denominations that are issues of baptism, issues of church polity, church authority. Maybe some are, uh, maybe some have elder, we're, 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 we're an elder-led, elder-ruled congregation versus a church, or a church versus churches that are congregational. And so there's some differences there that you look at. Um, and so, but those are secondary issues. Those aren't your primary issues. So I just want you to know that those things are there but so if we get back here, this is a first tier issue, the deity of Christ. And the Bible argues for it. Listen to what John 1, 1 says. And listen for the language of deity. Listen for the language of Christ being God. In the beginning was the word. The word was what? With God. And it says the word was God. Jehovah's Witness just changed the text altogether. They say the word was with God and the word was a God. And what's interesting about that and many people are bamboozled by this. They look in their New World Translation, they say, well, it, it, it says it, and it's a Bible, and these people, unfortunately, just don't know better. Those that they proselytize, and, and they, you know, they, they indoctrinate, manipulate, and they come and say, look, it says this. Look, I'm showing you, this is the Bible. But what's terrible is that the book of John itself was taken to specialists, to linguists, to grammarians, to those who are experts in their field at looking at a language such as Greek and seeing the grammatical structure and knowing if these things are right or wrong and what the Jehovah's Witness have done. They've taken the deity of Christ and they've done this in other places in their Bible and they've written it in such a way that whenever a linguist is looking at it, they say, and I quote, this is a poor grammatical construction. This doesn't exist in the Greek language. It would be like us trying to turn in a paper with sentences that have zero subject-verb agreement. You gotta have that to have a sentence, right? So we're turning this in. They're gonna say, that's not, even, that's, that's not even bad grammar. That's just not grammar. You can't have a lack of subject-verb agreement. You know, I can't say, uh, I can't say, well, he. Well, there's my sentence, you know? You have to have subject-verb agreement. There's rules that you have to follow. And so that's one ways that the deity of Christ is attacked is they take stuff like that and they just write it however they want. And people are buying into it because they show them a book that has pages and it has words printed on those pages. They say, look, it's Bible. It's Bible. And it says he was a God, not God himself. But the, but the original text is clear 
that the word was with God and the word was God. Colossians 2.9, in him dwells the fullness of deity in bodily form. How else do you deal with that? In him, Jesus, dwells the fullness of deity in bodily form. You can't say, well, that was speaking before he was incarnate. <laughs> no, it says in bodily form. When did Jesus put on flesh? When he came here. It didn't happen then. I think he's in the flesh now, but he wasn't in the flesh then. He put on flesh and he comes and in the fullness of deity, there's fullness of deity in bodily form. In John 1, 3, it says he created the world. What, is, what does Genesis teach us? That God created the heavens and the earth, that God created the world. While the sudden in the gospels is John saying that Jesus did it. Either there's a contradiction or Jesus is God. That's the only explanation. It's highly logical or it's completely illogical. You either have to say this Bible is completely contradictory or the only logical conclusion is that Jesus is God. Jesus calms the storm when his disciples are in the boat. You remember that? The storm comes up, they're fishing. Jesus is taking a nap. And so the disciples freak out. You know, they're worried. He comes up, he calms the storm. Oh, you of little faith. But how did they respond to him? They didn't look to the spirit of God and say, oh, the spirit moved through a mere man and spoke to the winds and the waves and calmed them. No, they responded to Jesus as though he had deity. They responded by saying, uh, by saying, what kind of man is this? Because they're attributing to him the power to command the wind and the waves. That's what's happening there. They're looking at him, not as a conduit, not as a, not as a vessel, but they're looking at him as the source for how and why these winds and these waves ceased. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter one, and this is a fantastic text for the deity of Christ. Listen to Hebrews chapter one. Let me just read a few things. The author of Hebrews begins by saying, this is how God has spoken to his people over the years. And then he says, but now, now he speaks to us through his son and he starts to speak of the son. It's very clear that he's speaking of Jesus Christ. He says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. There we are again. He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become a, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so listen to this. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. If, if, if according to the scriptures, there's, you should have no other gods and that you should worship no other gods, right? I mean, that's, Commandment one, commandment two, have no idols. There's only one God, worship him and him alone. How is it that God can condone the worship of his son and not be an idolater? How can God say, hey, the angels worship Jesus? If Jesus is not God, that means someone else other than God is receiving the worship, is receiving the praise. So in this text, if Jesus is not God, God then becomes the idolater. That's a problem. That's a problem. 
And the same is true of Jesus when he heals the man who was blind and he spat in the dirt and made the mud and he rubbed the, rubbed the mud on his eyes. I believe it's John chapter nine. He, he, and the guy could see and the guy starts worshiping Jesus. What does Jesus do? He receives it. <laughs> he receives the worship. The same situation just flipped on its head is in that John chapter nine. If Jesus is not God, and we should only worship God, if Jesus is not God, then Jesus is an idolater because he's receiving the worship of people instead of pointing that worship to God. So the only logical conclusion is either Jesus is an idolater or Jesus is God. And so listen to what the author of Hebrews says here, and this is kind of where I wanted to get. He says, of the Son, he says this, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with all the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The same name that is used for God in the Old Testament is being designated or given to Jesus in this New Testament passage. And the naysayers don't know what to do with that because that's what's happening. They're calling God Jehovah. And now they're saying, but of the Son, your throne, O Jehovah, is forever and ever. It's very clear. It's very clear he's saying, you are God. And he's using the same name. Just, just to make sure there's no confusion, he's using the same name that is designated for God in the Old Testament. Now it's being applied to or assigned to the Son here in Hebrews chapter one. I've talked to a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses about this text and they don't know what to say. They don't know what to say towards that. They scramble, they backpedal, they try to deflect or shift gears on me, but you... I just want to hold them to this and say, what do you do with this? Because it's using their language. They like the term Jehovah. They believe in Jehovah God. They just don't believe that Jesus is Jehovah God. But this text forces them into a corner and saying, you have to deal with this. Because guess what? In their New World Translation, it reads the same way as my ESV. It reads the same way as your NIV or your NLT or, your, or, or, or whatever scripture you're using. ASB, thank you, yeah, same one. It reads the same way. So... The Bible makes no, it makes no apologies about its intentions behind showing you that Christ is God. It doesn't, it doesn't mince words when it comes to the deity of Christ. And listen, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again, the nature of the atonement. Then I said Christianity hinges, but I'm going to take it a step further and say the nature of the atonement of Christ hinges on his deity. The potency of the atonement is and was contingent on the perfection of the Savior. And you only get a perfect Savior if you get a Savior who is fully man, yet most importantly, fully God. So when it says here that he emptied himself, it doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his deity, but it does beg the question of what he emptied himself of. So can we move past that and everybody's cool? I expect everyone believes the same way, but I don't wanna assume things. Can we, are we clear on that or do I need to belabor this point a little bit more? on the deity of Jesus. I'm assuming we're good to move forward, okay. So we look at the deity of Christ, but we, let's talk for a minute about the humanity of Christ. He had needs. We have to think of Jesus in human terms. 
Matter of fact, it should be comforting to us to think of Jesus in human terms. I would think as far as his suffering, what he goes through, the temptations of Christ, all these things, it brings me comfort to know he knows this place is awful. He knows what we deal with. He understands these things. He's not a stranger to our own afflictions. To a large degree, he's not a stranger. Now, Jesus didn't have a sin nature, but we do. But it doesn't mean he wasn't presented with temptation. It doesn't mean that he wasn't presented with, uh, presented with the way the world is. But Jesus had needs. He's a human. Jesus had a human body. He got, well, he got sick, I'm sure. I'm gonna say some, th- some things that the Bible doesn't exactly say. I'm not adding to. I'm, I'm saying this, w- let me say it this way. This is something that, that I, would, I, I like to entertain, I like to think of, but the Bible doesn't say for sure. So maybe he got sick, right? That's a part of the fall. He wasn't a sinner, but does that mean he couldn't get the stomach virus? I, I, I don't know. Uh, I know that he had needs. I know that he had to have his mama take care of him and feed him when he was a child. I know that he grew, the Bible says, in wisdom and in stature. I know that he grew in his knowledge of things. So Jesus is changing in that way. He's developing as a human, just as you and I develop as a human while not having a sin nature. He still did that. Here's a question that I have that I like to entertain, and this is some just for fun discussion, but it really does hurt my brain. You know, Jesus is a carpenter. So I would assume that Jesus was a much better carpenter than myself in Austin, but even though being a good carpenter, I would assume that Jesus might have hit his hammer on his finger or he may have cut himself or something. But then I ask myself, but could he? But did he? If he's not broken and if he's not fallen, but he does live in a broken, fallen world, how does that exactly apply? And this is just food for thought because I don't know. I don't know, but I do wonder. If he cut himself because he miscalculated something, is that a product of imperfection? If so, I would say, well, then he couldn't have cut himself because there is no imperfection. There's, no, there's no, nothing that's a byproduct of imperfection that happens to him because he's perfect. So, so I don't know. It's really kind of a, a weird argument that I have with myself sometimes. Could Jesus misstep, trip, and sprain his ankle? Well, does a misstep imply imperfection? A miscalculation? Well, Jesus is perfect. He doesn't miscalculate. So there's some degrees of his humanity that I don't get, that I would assume are maybe limited by his perfections, <laughs> where we're limited by our imperfections. So not to confuse the issue too much, but these are things that I think about. It's just fun food for thought. He grew in wisdom and knowledge. Luke 52 teaches us that. He had real human emotions. He had real human emotions. He was sad. He was happy. And all of these things are scripture to substantiate his emotions. But here's how the thing happens. Here's how Jesus and God can be one and all this stuff works. There's a, there's a, a, a theological term called the hypostatic union of Christ. Hypostasis basically means a personal union. So the concept is this, that Jesus as one man has two natures and these two natures exist in one man, the God-man. So there's a process of hypostasis in philosophy. There's also a process of hypostasis in medicine. But the theological idea of what's going on is that Jesus, as the man having human nature, Jesus as the God, as God having divine nature, the two coexist. They coexist because his nature is perfect and without sin. Ours is a sin nature. His was not a sin nature. 
Now that plays in really well to the argument of the impeccability of Christ. I told you we're getting theological, right? Or the fact that Jesus could or could not sin. I would argue that he could not sin based on the fact that he didn't have a sin nature. If he had a sin nature, we've got major problems because people have sin natures. They do what? They sin. How could he have a sin nature and that sin nature coexist with the God divine nature? But there's lots of fun debate about that. And you can ask Austin all those fun questions. So the hypostatic union means that there's this personal union between the nature of God, God the Son, and the nature of man, Jesus the man. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, it's an admirable, an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. So Jesus emptied himself, but what did he empty himself of? It wasn't his deity. So let me help you understand what he emptied himself of. And it starts to make sense. Again, if you miss it, you miss it big, okay? It's like swinging for the fences. If you miss it, you miss it big, you miss it ugly. But if you hit it, you hit a home run. So we don't want to miss it big. So that's why I want to labor on this point. So what did he empty himself of? If Christ didn't empty himself when he became a man, or he didn't empty himself of his divinity when he became a man, what did he empty himself of? Well, he gave up a favorable relationship with the divine law. And I've borrowed a couple of these from Simon Kistemacher, a commentary theologian that I like to read. Jesus, we know that would eventually become sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our our behalf that we may become the righteousness of God in him. So in a sense, he's subjected to the divine law in that he didn't become a sinner, but he became sin, right? So his punishment was because of sin. So there was definitely justice involved. There was definitely divine law involved. And he was not subjected to those things prior to the incarnation. Had he always been uh, a God of justice? Absolutely. But subjected to justice is a different story. And he was subjected to justice when he gave up that favorable relationship to the divine law by becoming man. He also gave up his riches, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, talk about the riches that Jesus had. And so those were left there. Again, we're not, we're not stripping him of deity. We're just saying, hey, positionally, he's lost some of those things. I love where I live. If the Lord says, I want you to move to, to, to Haiti and, and, and just live in poverty and stuff, my position has changed. My person hasn't changed. My nature hasn't changed, but I've, cha- I've relocated. So there's some things that I'm gonna miss. There's some things that I'm giving up that were really fantastic, Right? And so the same is true here. Jesus left his position. That position was of a favorable relationship to the law. He had riches. He gave up his heavenly glory. I'm not saying Jesus wasn't glorious. I'm saying he gave up heavenly glory. John 17, four through five says just that. And he also gave up, in part, the exercise of his divine attributes. So let me explain that for just a second. There's a theory called the kenosis theory. Kino, meaning to empty. So there's those who would argue for the kenosis theory and they would say, see, Jesus emptied himself of his deity. And he emptied himself of these divine attributes. They would say he emptied himself of omniscience. He emptied himself of his omnipresence. He emptied himself of his omnipotence. And all those are fancy words for he emptied himself of the fact that he could be everywhere at the same time, which I would agree with that. He, he's, not, he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at the same time when he was in the flesh. They say he emptied himself of his 
of all of his power. I would say, nope, he didn't empty himself of all of his power. He emptied himself of the exercise of his divine power because we see several times in scripture that Jesus actually exercised that divine power. Jesus is the one who said, don't you know that I could call down a legion of angels and take care of all this stuff? He's saying, I have divine power, it's here. I'm just choosing not to exercise it. There's a big difference in that and someone who has emptied himself of his power altogether. So he's not exercising it, but he still has it versus he doesn't have it. It was emptied. It doesn't exist in him anymore. And they would also say he emptied himself of his knowledge. Well, several times in the gospels, Jesus is reading folks' mind. Jesus comes up to the woman at the well and she's giving him this story. And he says, well, let me tell you what's really going on. And he reads her mail out loud. How do you know this? <laughs> How do you know this? Because he's God. He chose in that moment to exercise his divine knowledge. But then you read places in scripture talking about the end of all things, and it said only the Father knows, not even the Son knows these things. Well, how could, how could Jesus be God and not know these things? Because God, the Son, chose not to know. It's that simple. He chose not to know. It was a part of him becoming human. But there were times where he activated those divine attributes. So, kenosis theory, bad. It asserts that Jesus emptied himself of divine attributes. His knowledge, his power, his presence, and it's false. But he emptied himself of the exercise of those divine attributes. His person didn't change. His nature, his nature did not change. Colossians 2.9 again says, in him dwells the fullness of deity in bodily form. That's as a man. As a man in the flesh, Jesus didn't give up those things. He's still fully God. His power did not change. Matthew 26, 53, that's where he says, I can call on 12 legions of angels. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Did we forget that one? That's a very powerful thing that no one else can do. And he did that. He chose to exercise that. So he didn't give up his omnipotence. He healed the lame and leprous person, the blind person, like I told you from John chapter nine, the man who started worshiping him, he healed him. So clearly he didn't give up his omnipotence. And then it says after that, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So he didn't become less God, but he did become human. Not just human, but a servant. He was in the form of a servant in the likeness of men and then found in human form. He's found in human form. When it says that he's in the likeness of men, the word is schema. What that means is, listen to this, and this will help draw the, paint the picture here. So when he was in the likeness of men, schema is the same as fashion or appearance. It's like a king who takes off his royal garb and puts on sackcloth. Does it make a king less a king when he takes off his robe. No. So what are we saying? A king is not a king when he's taking a bath or a shower or when he's sleeping, you know, when he's out for a jog. What, does that mean a king's not a king anymore? No. A king is a king by position, by birth, by, by right. So Jesus didn't give up being king. Jesus didn't give up being God. Jesus gave up the, the exercise of those divine attributes, but not divinity in itself. And he took on the likeness of men, meaning the appearance of a man. But it doesn't just say the likeness of men. It says he took on the form of a man. So now we have the word form or morphe used twice. He's the form of God and he's the form of man. 
fully. It didn't mean he just looked like it. It doesn't just mean that, oh, he's really something else, and like Halloween, he puts on a costume to play a role. That's not what happened. He did put on flesh, but he became flesh. He became human, fully human and fully divine. This is, Christianity hinges on this reality, okay? This is a major, major, major issue. It's not something to just be flippant with or, eh, okay, that's, that's, that's cool. This is it. This is it. You miss this, nothing else matters. You get everything but this, you've, you've still missed everything. So you strip a king of his scepter, his crown, his rings, his train, his robe. The king is still the king, he just doesn't look like one. So that's what it means that Jesus took on the likeness of men. Is that he didn't look so much like God, but he was still very much God. It says he took on the form of a servant. He didn't just look like the part, he didn't just look like the servant, but he actually became the part. He washed the disciples' feet, and so on and so forth. There's just all kinds of scriptures about Jesus who came to serve, not to be served. So he was found in human form, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Just, I'll wrap it up by rolling through these things here. So Jesus is the almighty host of heaven that became the focus of relentless humiliation. Humiliation began in the incarnation. So don't just think, okay, that's when he, that's, that's, that's when he went to the cross. It culminates in the cross, but it began with the incarnation. How much lesser are we than Jesus, especially pre-incarnate Jesus? When he became flesh, he left a lot he left a lot, not just left the exercise of, mostly the exercise of his divine attributes, but he left close proximity with the divine trinity. Why would anybody want to leave that? I mean, I know we don't get it, but why would anybody want to leave that? He, his humility began at the incarnation. Listen to what Spurgeon says about the incarnation. He says, and now wonder, ye angels, the infinite has become an infant, He upon whose shoulders the universe doth hang, hangs at his mother's breast. He who created all things and bears up the pillars of creation hath now become so weak that he must be carried by a woman. Not a slight to women, obviously, but the fact that Jesus has to be carried because he can't take care of himself as a man, as a child. This is humility. He humbled himself to the point of death, to the point, don't miss that, to the point means that this captures the extent of his humiliation in that it began at his incarnation, not at the cross. Christ went from divine authority to childlike dependency. And then he died on a cross. We all know what happened at the cross. We all know it began with the scourging. We all understand that he is taken before Pontius Pilate. He goes before the Sanhedrin. He receives presumably 39 lashings from experts at what they did. They ripped, his, they ripped him from the top of his shoulder or the bottom of his neck to the bottom of his calves and tore his body to shreds. Humiliation. An innocent man. Humiliation. Stripped naked and everybody there to watch him and then suspended naked on a cross after he fails to carry his cross. Why? Because he's fully human. Lost so much blood, he can't even carry the cross. Granted, it was probably 175 to 300 pounds, but he couldn't carry it. So Simon of Serene comes and picks up his cross and carries him, showing the humanity of Jesus. Could he have tapped into 
the fully God side and said, I'll carry this cross, absolutely. But no, fully human, fully divine. He carries his cross. He goes up there to the place of the skull called Golgotha, and they suspend him on a cross. They taunt him, laugh at him, they mock him, and there he died. It's a humiliating death, the cross. Humiliating, because it's a spectacle. Because people come from all over to gather and just watch you slowly die, and you're naked. And he died a guilty man's death. This is, this is the one who had nothing to be humble about. This is the one who Isaiah 6 says that, that his glory is such that the entire temple was quaking. You know what I'm saying? That the angels are singing in antiphonal song back and forth about his holiness. This is the one who a new song is sung about him in Revelation 5. When all of the attention is focused on Yahweh sitting on his throne in Revelation 4 and then one of the angels cries out and says, is there anyone worthy to open the scroll? And then silence falls over heaven. There's this earth-shattering celebration of song offered to God, both by the creatures and by the 24 elders, and they're singing. And then someone says, Who can, who's worthy? And silence falls over the room. And then John says, I began to weep. Why? Because there's no one that's worthy. But then one of the elders came and said, behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain, he is worthy. But yet he's suspended on a cross. He's humbled himself. He says he's given a name above every name. The name that every tongue shall confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. This text doesn't preach universalism. It doesn't say, see, everyone one day will profess the name of Jesus Mormons will tell you that. They will say, see, that's what that means. There might be suffering for some for a little while, but this ultimately means that everyone will proclaim the name of Jesus. And they couldn't be more wrong because what it means is that because Jesus is who he is, there will be not a shred of doubt on that day, whether you're in Christ or out of Christ, whether you go to be with Jesus for eternity or whether you're separated from Christ for all eternity, at that moment, everyone will give their full recognition and saying, you are who you say you are. Doesn't mean they'll love him, doesn't mean they'll want him, but it means they'll recognize that he is Lord. There'll be no question. And this is the one that humbled himself, right? It says the Father exalted him. This verb is used once in the New Testament, one time and one time only. The Father exalted him. It shows contrast. It shows distinction between Christ and the claims of any other. God has exalted Christ in a very specific way. And he gave him a name above any other name, a name that commands humility, a name that demands recognition, and a name that brings glory to God the Father, and a name that you share, a name that you've been given as Christian. I've heard it said that Christian means little Christ. I don't know about all that, but you bear the name Christian, Christ follower, right? So what do we do with this information? How do we respond to Paul's information in this text? Well, it's very simple. If the Bible, if the biblical claims of Jesus are true, his standards should be the standard by which we set our lives. We don't pick and choose the parts of his standard that we want to follow. We see them, we apply them, we live according to them. And the standard is, you must be humble because that's what this text is about. And Paul labors the point the best way that he knows how, and that is by pointing to Jesus. So the application is simple. 
Let's do what the scripture says. And so many times where it says, be imitators of Christ. But the only way to be an imitator of Christ is to know the life of Jesus. And how do you find the life of Jesus other than knowing the word of God? If God highly exalts the son, then you better believe our responsibility is to highly exalt him as well. Be imitators of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you would help us to imitate you well. Lord, I ask that we have found this text to be encouraging and not confusing, not difficult. Lord, if there's been any shred of doubt in any one of us as to whether or not you are or Christ, Christ you are who you say you are, I pray that this discussion today has confirmed it for us, that we would leave here with no doubt. We would leave here saying that real men, real men that we have real account for, real historical record of, we have eyewitnesses who have seen the resurrection, who have seen resurrected Christ, eyewitnesses who spent years under the teachings of Jesus, who had conversations with him that, that we may never know, especially this side of heaven, who are writing and saying he is everything that he claims to be. Men that gave their lives to promote the deity of Jesus. Or may we buy into that without a doubt. May we project that truth onto the lives of others that you allow us to rub shoulders with, to mingle with. And may it affect our lives to such a degree that no one can say that we have any doubts as to who the true master of all things is. Help us to make much of Christ. Give us a joy and a taste for the beauty of Jesus. Give us endurance to stand in the midst of adversity, to stand in the midst of hardship and conflict, and to be bold as ambassadors for Christ. I pray that for myself because I'm weak. I pray that for those that are here, and I pray that for those that are not. In Jesus' name, amen.